Welcome to the Teaching a Rockstar podcast, and on today's episode, we have Jonathan, Big John, John Medina, and uh, John and I met um, at a at a Teaching a Rockstar event in McAllen, and uh, you know, when somebody walks in the room, you can just tell something special about the dude, and uh, he showed up, and then I figured out, oh, that's the speaker guy, and then we uh, we ended up uh, dining, we had a beautiful lunch of Burger King, and, uh, and, and hung out, and he spent the day at the event, and we hung out at lunch, and after, and he's got an amazing story, and it, and it turns out he's coming to Houston this week, and I had to get him on the show. Here we go. Teach a rock star, big Jonathan Medina. Let's do this. Hey, brother, thanks for doing this. Oh, I'm super excited to be here. Uh, presentation was awesome that day in McAllen, so I'm glad we were able to connect. Um, and I'm and then now. It was just days later, and I'm already here again in your house, in the studio, <laughs> face-to-face with you right now. You know what, man? Here's, here's what I was wanting to ask you after hearing some of your story. And we'll, we'll get into a little bit of it. Um, um, first of all, how old are you? I am 32 now. Okay, 32. So here's what I want to ask you is uh, 20 years ago. 20 years ago, and you're 12. Um, if someone walked up to you and said, someday you're going to be standing on a stage with nothing but a microphone in front of hundreds of thousands of students and educators every year across the nation telling your story and, and doing whatever you can to inspire them and to make their lives better and have an impact to be influential in their lives, would you have believed it at that time? Absolutely no way. Uh, <laughs> 12 years old, I was afraid to speak in front of people. Uh, I had moved from place to place, so I was even afraid to meet people. Uh, I was a scared little, little, probably 250-pound kid at that time. <laughs> that's like that's my entire family. <laughs> we come from a, a long line of sub five foot four. <laughs> yeah, man, you got a whole family in one with you, dude. If you showed up at Thanksgiving dinner in my house, somebody would know that somebody here had been dipping outside the gym pool. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so um, let, let's let's get into it a little bit. So you tour around. The, everybody everybody knows who you are. And Jonathan Medina, he speaks to uh, educators. He speaks at universities. He has a, a huge following, uh, speaking at middle schools and high schools, and does some elementary work here and there. And um, and first of all, how did you like? How did you get into this thing? Um, I got into it because I used to run an organization where we wanted to help schools, and so I sponsored a speaker to go to about five or six schools. And as I drove him around, he started asking me questions about my life. I had just heard his story, um, so I felt very connected with him. And I also thought, well, I'll never see him again. So I actually shared when I used to be a very private, very shy person. So I shared with this gentleman named Keith Davis my story and things about growing up down in the Rogan Valley. And he just thought that it was crazy that I had gone to Georgetown University after my parents, uh, their situation of going to prison and being raised by my grandfather, who was a migrant worker. So after middle school football practice, I'd be working the fields with him. And so the speaker just thought, well, those are crazy stories. Um, and so he started inviting me to go speak with him, taught me a little bit of how to speak in front of the group. Yeah. And just kind of at first it was a little bit of word of mouth. And then all of a sudden I started getting a following and um, started learning some of how the business runs and it's just taken off from there. Yeah. You know, I think for most people, they, um, they have a moment where they realize, I'm going to do that. Where like they, they see somebody say, that's what I'm going to, it sounds like for you, like rather than um, you finding this, this career, this art is kind of like the career, the art found you. 
Yeah, and definitely, I, even as he was coaching me on how to speak on stage, I still was very reluctant about sharing my own story. I practiced public speaking a lot, and so I could give you, here's the, the three ways to be more motivated or something like that, a generic thing. But it was this moment where I shared my story, and after one of the speeches in San Antonio, Texas, this little boy comes up to me afterwards, yeah. and he tells me how his mom had just died two weeks before of a drug overdose. And I usually close with talking about my family and how as I went on to go to college, then my family started following behind. And so this little young man, he looked at me and said, well, I want to be a leader in my family too. And after hearing your story, I know I could do it. And it was in that moment where I kind of really felt, okay, I specifically need to be doing this because my story, my yeah. what I'm doing could be helping people instead of me just holding it on the inside. Yeah, you know, I think some people see what we do, and they see the crowd, and they see the reaction, and they see the laughter and the and the emotion. And but it really, what it's about is that moment right there. Whether it's somebody after, it's that one on one thing where you get that somebody's life is like they're on a new path. You can see the trajectory of their life had changed in that moment because of what you said, and that is what this thing is really all about. Yeah, it's not all about just being a rock star on stage. No, okay. yeah. <laughs> I, I love your branding, and that's a big part of why I wanted to attend that day. I was like, oh, I love all the stuff, the way it looks, but you're right. Um, it was when some of the stories that you shared that made me think about. I remember you told a little uh, part of your story where you were you talked about sitting on the sink and looking outside and yeah. hoping that your, your dad would come. And I remember seeing my sister. We have different dads, but I remember my sister at times where maybe my, my stepdad didn't follow through the way he said he would. And my sister waiting for that letter in the mail for that birthday card or something, and, and it wasn't coming. And I would see how disappointed she would look. And so that, that little story that you shared right there, I remember feeling like, oh, I'm about to cry. And I texted um, people. I'm like, oh, this guy already has me about to cry. I'm, 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 but I'm not crying. I'm not going to cry. I'm not. Um, yeah. But sure enough, later on, another story got me. So You know, it's, it, you know what's interesting is, um, and, and I know you see it too, is where, uh, you know, as I'm performing... And um, and just like you, where you'll say something, and you can see people are engaged, but you'll find that one person that is just, they have the head down, the hand up, the tears are coming out. And then and there's other people that they're not even connected with this thing yet. And then, but then there's another story where this person, you know, is nothing, but they, now they're connected to that. And, and it's true, man, everybody has a story within them. And it's almost as if we're giving permission for them to be vulnerable and emotional and connect with that. Therefore, they can connect better with their students. Exactly. That's one of the things that I think if you share first, it allows it, it gives them that permission to share back with you. Yeah. And then you get to see why, you know, maybe that kid isn't engaged after a holiday weekend or, or maybe that kid every, it's like every other weekend, this kid comes back to school and it's like, what's the problem? Like, oh, it's because that's the weekend that he's with mom or with dad or Maybe dad disappointed him, mom disappointed him. Something might have happened. Sure. Yeah, man. You always say, man, as an educator, like as, as, a, as, a, as an adult of influence and whatever you do, like you're the limiting factor. And especially in the classroom, like the class will go wherever you're willing to go. And if it, it really is that place of love, well, your level of love and acceptance and being relentless in how you feel about those kids, that's the limiting factor of what they're willing to do. Oh, I, I totally believe that. Um and we were sharing different stories to different teachers or, or different people you've interviewed. And, and uh, I thought it was an awesome story where you talked about that one detective who yeah. you, you told me how, how emotional he got just talking about his favorite teacher. Yeah. You know, that's true. You know, and, and you know, I, I'm kind of known for that, or used to be, where I would sneak up on people in public and, and interview them and say, hey, tell me about your teacher. And, and it's true, man. It's 100% 100 
everyone has a story and everyone 100% shared. There were, there were, I always say there was one person that couldn't get himself to do it. He said, I got somebody behind us. I don't want to be on camera. I, it's freaking me out. I can't do it. And, he, and here's the irony of it. It's a professional UFC fighter. And he says, I'm like, wait a minute. You get in a cage on national television with a trained killer and you're afraid to talk on camera about your teacher. He goes, yes, I'm telling you. <laughs> Yeah, they probably didn't want to, to not do it well enough to honor yeah. that teacher, I bet. Always even. afraid of the emotion and connecting with That's how much meaningful. Too, yeah. 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 So when when you were um and let's let's get into the story a little bit, because um it's man, it's just it's absolutely fascinating because what I love about your story in my mind, it eliminates so many excuses of people that say, Well, I can't because I can't because I come from this family or I wasn't able to be and for kids think, Well, it's not possible for me because of this. Not po- I'm not come from that family. We don't we don't we don't live in that neighborhood. We don't have that kind of car. I don't have those kind of parents. And like your story kind of eliminates all those. Yeah, um, so, and those things that you just said, uh, I remember being told those things. Um, I actually have, when I do professional developments, I do a little thing where I compare two different counselors that I had. Yeah. Um, and I had one counselor, and I'm sure she didn't mean harm for me. I'm sure, I, I don't think she was in trying to hurt me, but she was often telling me, oh, you shouldn't apply to that university. You're not going to get in. Or, oh, it's, you should, why are you taking the SAT again? You're, you already have a good score. It's like, well, I'm trying to get to this elite university. I need to have an elite score. Um, or even in other times where they wouldn't let me into a certain class, I wanted to take the AP um, calculus class or something, and they're like, "Oh, well, you didn't do the the little summer thing before, and it's like, yeah. so we don't think you're going to be ready." Or um, even this nonprofit that I worked or, or I got to go to, I remember the um, the college counselor. She she was a she worked at Harvard Admissions and. Um, she wasn't trying to hurt me. She was trying to prepare me. She she thought I should take a fifth year uh, at some private school, go take a fifth year. But I remember her saying, you know what, I think because of the town that you come from, the school that you come from, I think you'll get into an elite university. I just don't know that you'd be prepared and ready. But luckily, that was going into my senior. Senior, I had some excellent teachers that also helped prepare me. And so each year, I got to level up because of my great teachers or the different people around me. Uh, so that wasn't the case. But yeah. Um, you know, you know, man, for me, where the place that where you grew up in the Rio Grande, the RGV, you know what it reminds me of is people talk about the RGV much like um, people from Louisiana talk where they live, where they, they're so proud and they love it so much. Like, that's the thing about the RGV. Like, it's that, it's, I don't know what it is, man. It's like this pride of um, <laughs> that location. It's interesting, you know? Oh, no, I definitely, so where I talked about that summer, uh, I, I got to spend a summer at Princeton University mm-hmm. going into my senior year. And I remember they showed us this documentary, and it was like the four poorest places in the United States of America. And it was like <laughs> this one neighborhood in Detroit and, and some other places. And then they threw up the Rio Grande Valley. And, <laughs> hey, man, that's where I live. And, and that's what exactly what I was like, whoa, there's, there's four of us here at this camp for the summer here. We're from the, or I think it was 10 of us uh-huh. from the Rio Grande Valley out of the 50 that were there for the summer. I was like, whoa, that's, that's where we're from. <laughs> Um, but no, I, I didn't grow up thinking that the Rio Grande Valley was a bad place. Yeah. I never saw it as a negative. Um, the only time that I didn't like the Rio Grande Valley was um, there. Was, I spent two, a year and a half here in Houston, and my mom, because of her drug issues, every time we went to the valley, she'd go back to her old friends and she'd do a lot of bad things. But other than that, that was the only time in my life where I ever not liked going to the Rio Grande Valley. I love the Rio Grande Valley. Um, I even take so much of it for granted. Um, I remember. Growing up down in the Rio Grande Valley, we're right on the border. So, um, first of all, I'm a 300-pound man. So, 
food has to be a big part of what what I'm interested in. A lot of and, fuel, brother. <laughs> and so that we have great. Uh, we're in Texas, so we got great amount of meat. Uh, we're in South Texas, where the Mexican seasoning, and and then we're right off of the water, so we have great fresh seafood. And then I go on to Georgetown University, where we are the number one ranked vegan cafeteria in the nation. And I thought oh, I might have made a big mistake. Right. Yeah, and so when when you were growing up, um, already you've alluded to some challenge with your father and and mom, and and they both have their own issues that they're working through. Um, man, at what point in your childhood did you know that you that this is something not normal? Because you know, kids they don't know this is just our family. Was it was there a point you realized, wait a minute, man, there's some things happening in my family that might not be happening in other families? Um, I'm not sure when exactly it was. Where I definitely started to feel it the most was around seventh grade. Um, I noticed, started noticing that because of my mom's inconsistencies with how committed she was with working her jobs um, as a nurse, that we would have less things, or we we were having to move around so often. Um, I, I wasn't allowed to go stay at friends' houses unless their families were also engaged in drugs. Um, so I, I was like the opposite of what. Yeah. Thinking. Right. And so I could only go to the, I'd go to these homes and maybe spend the night at a friend's house. Um, and their parents had a lot of issues with drugs. And so I'd have to experience, you know, maybe some domestic violence happening at my friend's houses. Um, and but in seventh grade, I also that's when I got into this. Um, I was in pre-AP math. I remember I was in pre-AP math. And so in that one class in math class, I started to hang out with all these other kids who for the most part, came from uh, families that cared a lot about the academics. And so I started making friends with them, and they would tell all these different stories. I noticed that all of their parents came to all the meetings. I noticed their parents um, were just at all the games and super friendly and nice. They'd take us out to eat afterwards, and, and they'd pay for me because I never would take money or anything. And so I had the benefit of being around a lot of when I shifted who kind of my personal friend group was at school because – I was in this class and it was all of those kids. Yeah. And I sat next to the kid who was like the best at math. And so he, I became best friends with him and my grades started went, went going from kind of mediocre to I was competing with him to be the best in the math class. Uh, I just started getting confidence, but I started seeing all of what maybe some of the benefits of having the better parents. But then you just said it, there's no excuses. So I didn't see it as, oh, well, my parents, I, I just thought of it as, well, if I want to compete with them, I have to overcome that barrier. I didn't see yeah. it as, oh, I can't do it because of, you know, not having my parents engaged the way theirs are or, or, or involved the way theirs were. Yeah. I just thought, well, that's just another thing that I have to overcome. So I might have to get there a little bit earlier or, or study a little bit harder or, um, I don't know. You know, there's, there's all kinds of different leadership things that we read, and they all just kind of fell into my life. I started adding a little piece, a little piece, a little piece, and overcame all the different obstacles. And, you know, what's interesting with kids is the dealing with the emotion and awareness and the reality, which is very – the perception of what their reality is and what it, their reality might be to other people looking in from the outside. And it's weighing those two things of the love that you have for your mom and then and the, the realization that she has some real issues in her life right now. Yeah, I specifically can remember uh, – I must have been 12, 11 years old um, and – it's when my mom started really using a lot more of the drugs. She, so she she was a nurse, and she would actually uh, sell drugs as well. And we lived right by uh, a border, and it was at the time it was very easy to, to just go across the border and come back. Um, and so she would go and buy prescription drugs and sell them. And 
I remember my, I would, I kind of was the, the accountant of the family as an 11 year old. You know, I was seventh grade pre AP math, so I was good. Yeah. And so I had to. You're hired. <laughs> and so I would count up and make projections on how much money my mom would make based off of what she purchased. And I would even have kind of a cutoff. It's like, well, if you use this much, it's going to start going into the negative. And so now we haven't made money. You may, you started losing money for the family. But it was weird because you're such you're a kid. So yeah. I, I had done that for probably a year. And then I started thinking, like, well, drugs are bad. So my mom's a nurse. She's supposed to be healing people, but she's selling drugs. And that's negative. And so I would try to have these conversations with her at the time. Um, and you're just a 10, 11-year-old kid or whatever. So she just kind of pushed me aside. Like, oh, you're, you're quiet. Yeah. Um, but I remember thinking those things. Like, oh, this is bad. This is not good. And so I would try to... And I could see that it would negatively affect the family. When she would binge on drugs, all of a sudden we'd have to move to a new place. Or she would binge on drugs, and even though we had money for food, she wasn't around, so we couldn't go buy food. Um, and so I started to notice it, and I'm the, I'm the oldest in the family, so I, would, I, I kind of had to carry a lot of the burden. It was when my mom really started to get into the drug problems was after she got divorced from my stepdad. Um, I didn't know that he wasn't my real dad until the, the point of the divorce, somehow along the line, I forget, or you're a kid, you know, you, you want a certain thing. And so I just, he, and he was awesome. He treated me like I was his own son. I still love my dad, Gilbert, to, to this day. I go to his family for barbecues. It's like if I'm not a stepchild at all Yeah. Um, until they got divorced. And then they kind of told me like, oh, well, your dad is actually this other man who lives here in Houston who I had breakfast with my dad. And I've been able to mend that relationship. Um, I got to know him when I was in college. Yeah, and so when when you were a kid and um, your mom has these the these real these are real challenges and it's so much for like an eleven twelve year old kid to deal with, you know what what was what you know because you had, because you're mad at her you had to be like there's some anger in you because well, now we have to move again because her but you still love her mm-hmm. and so what, what what was that like that going back and forth between those two emotions because and it's hard to like who are you going to talk to about it? you can't talk to your friends your teacher or whoever I mean, you, you have to keep all the stuff inside that had to be crazy yeah and and we were even told you like you can't tell your teachers any of this so we, we would practice like a fire drill this is how you look at your teacher right in the eyes and make it look like you're not lying to them and so we would rehearse with scripts and and almost these things to protect the fact that my mom or and my stepdad or and they had these issues well I'm starting to resent my mom for that. And and I would say I'm highly embarrassed of, so when I'm going into um, eighth grade, my mom goes to jail for the first time. So she's six months in jail. I go move to this town. And it's also when I'm kind of physically coming into my own. So I'm suddenly, I get a growth spurt. I'm more athletic. I'm, I was always better looking than everyone else, but okay. Like, not clearly. So. <laughs> um, but no, I, I was, I suddenly am, I'm bigger, faster, stronger, and, and you're a boy, so you, you like this athletics part. My mom goes to jail, so uh, when I moved with my grandfather, my grandfather could barely read English, uh, so I would just, I made my own schedule, I turned it into, my mom didn't let me play sports, she was afraid that I would get hurt. And so when I moved with my grandfather, I just say, hey, Grandpa, sign this, and he signs off, and now I'm in athletics again. And now I'm the big, strong, fast athlete, all the kids like me, uh, and then my mom gets out of jail, and we have to move again because she has us moving back to Houston. Uh, but a little bit after that, she gets in trouble, uh, and this time it's she's going to be in jail for a, for a couple of years. Um, so I, I move back to this town, and I'm super embarrassed, but um, I was resentful. I, I, I hated my mom at the time, and so yeah. um, I didn't like that I would see all the other parents engage. And, and I was being a good kid, so I was around a lot of these families where I'm seeing – Great parents, 
And they're always asking, well, how come your mom doesn't come to the games? You're, you're the best player. Why does your mom never come? Why does your dad never come? Why? Explain this to me. Explain this to me. Explain this to me. And I, I didn't know what to say, so I would just make up these lies and say, oh, my mom's in Houston. She's, she can't come down. And she was in Houston, but she was incarcerated um, kind of in the suburb area or about an hour outside of Houston. I forget yeah. where it was. But, and I never wrote her. Uh, my mom, for two years, she got two letters from me. And even one of them, I, I copied and pasted it. Um, I, I just, because I had an uncle that was incarcerated, and I copied and pasted the same Word document because I, I typed it out. And and I always think that's that that wasn't me being as loving as I should have been. And, and I was growing as a leader, and, and I always think how embarrassed I was of that moment where my mom for two years, she's suffering from the choices that she made, but and they, they were her choice to make, but I didn't have to be, you know, I'm still was the oldest in my family, so I always took the burden of wanting to be a good leader, and, and I just think that I could have done so much better in that moment. And so it was it was hard to wrestle with that. And, yeah. Um, I remember seeing one of my favorite scenes um, was this when Will Smith is with his dad, or he meets his dad for the first time, and I remember seeing that. I only cried three times. Okay, well, before This Is Us, I'd only cried about three times ever watching TV. <laughs> and this is one of those scenes. This Is Us makes me cry like every time. For but, sure. Um, and I see the scene of how Will Smith is mad at his dad or – but he, he doesn't want to show it. He's like, well, I've still become a good man, even though he's never been there. And I remember feeling that way growing up. I remember I had been, I'm excelling as an athlete. I'm, I'm a top 10% student. I'm a top 10 student. I'm president of my class. I'm all the things that what I would think would make a parent proud at the time. Yet for some reason, my dad at that time had chosen not to be a part of my life. Yeah. And my mom had made choices to take her out of my life. And so I remember thinking, well, why don't they want... Why doesn't my mom want to be a part of my life enough to make the right choices? Why, why has my dad never even tried to reach out to me? I'm a good kid. There's, after a basketball game, there's a line of 100 people that just want to shake my hand and tell me how great a player I was. And, and my mom's not getting to watch the games because of the choices. Cause, yeah. and, I, and I was associated as if my mom loved me, she would make better choices. I didn't, at the time, realize how the struggle of those addictions were for her or, or hadn't realized of what her childhood might have meant or, and how that led into a lot of her problems that she sure. was still, she hadn't figured out how to overcome them at the time. And even the biology of it all, you know, I, I watched a lot of, um, watched a, a recent documentary on just the receptor sites of some people and when whatever it is in that particular drug, where it's cocaine or opioids or whatever that, that, that is and how, where, when I, you know, I've, I recently had surgery and, um, you know, I had a bottle of whatever they give you and um, I think I took five uh, somebody else takes one of those, and it is the most euphoric feeling because of the receptor sites, because of their their neurology, their biology, how everything it works within them, and it's and it's almost unfair, you know how like for one person it's set up that it doesn't affect them at all, and another person, if you combine their biology with the with their with the nurturing part, whatever they experience in life, it's almost as if they're destined for a really hard life. Yeah, and I I have a but scar as a kid right here you don't you don't know that oh yeah as a kid I don't know any of that. No. I just grew up, and I remember even having so much fear. Where I was going to say I have a scar on my hand where I went to the emergency room because I don't know how to fix a dryer, and I got myself hurt. Um, and so I have to go to the emergency room, split my hand in half or across the top here, and huge scar, and they give me medication to take, and they're like, oh, this will take away the pain. 
and I was so afraid. It's gonna end me up in jail, brother. I I can't even. I'm I'm too afraid to even mess with it because I've seen how my mom would use prescription uh, drugs or or the different drugs that affected a whole generation in my family. Where um, I think they could have had tremendous success. My mom is incredibly skilled and has great talent. My uncle's the same. But because of the choices they made where they got involved in drugs at a teenage age, which is why I love that I had those great teachers that impacted me because I didn't I chose to go towards the academic side to get out of instead of trying to escape by doing the bad stuff that had plagued my family for so long. Yeah, those teachers that you had all along, like as you're going up through, you know, whether it's middle school and junior high and into the high school, looking back, how much I wonder how much do you think they knew? Because I know, like my, like I've had counselors come into my room and close the door and sit me down. I want to talk to you about this kid, and you hear the story. It's like, oh my gosh, I had no idea, and the kid doesn't know that I know. And I wonder, looking back, how much of the, how much of your story your teachers knew? I don't think the when when I was moving around a lot, the, the teachers knew. But when I definitely after my mom went to prison and I was living with my grandfather. I knew they knew something was up because um, I had, I remember, you know, I'm, I'm, maybe I shouldn't share names or anything, but I know my sophomore year when my grandfather, as a migrant worker, he leaves the or he leaves to a different part of the, the country to go work. He left to South Carolina for six months. And so I'm experiencing my sophomore year right after my mom has just gone to prison and I'm living alone in his house. Yeah, this is and, unbelievable. But, and so... My grandfather, the only way that he could send me money was for me to ask him, but I hated being home because I didn't want to be home alone. I didn't want to face what was going on. Um, when I was at home, you have all this time to be by yourself, and, and that's when I would beat myself up mentally. And I had some awesome friends or, or being involved in school, so I would make excuses just to be at school all the time. Yeah. And so I wasn't at home when my grandfather could have said, oh, you need an extra $50 just to buy food, more food for the month. I wasn't there to answer that phone call, and so I didn't get these extra support that my grandfather could have given me. So I was coming home, and all I had was hot pockets and frozen burritos for six months, basically. Yeah. And and sometimes it wasn't even enough. So I would come home, instantly eat two burritos, and that's all I had for dinner. Two hot pockets, and that's all I had. Um, this is a time where I'm working out two, three times a day. Um, going through pu- or you know experiencing you know growing growing and the growth spurt I've heard about that I don't have any uh... <laughs> you didn't go suddenly from <laughs> two foot to, to no. five foot <laughs> no dude I went from like five one to five three <laughs> huge percentage <laughs> and so I'm I'm having experienced all of that and then out of nowhere my coach comes up to me one day and says hey um, you can eat as much as you want at lunchtime and. The, the cafeteria lady kind of like gives me a little wink and I, I, I'm thinking, oh, they know. And I remember being so upset because yeah. I was afraid of people knowing that I was living alone. I didn't know what, what if Child Protective Services was going to come and pick me up or something or I was going to have to leave this school where I've made these friends and I love my friends and it's going to happen again or, or the warnings of, because I'd seen different TV shows where I'm thinking, oh, this is what's going to happen. My mom would scare me into thinking that we were going to go into foster care and and my siblings were going to get raped and things like that. So I was afraid of what Child Protective Services might do if they found out certain things about my life or my childhood. And so now I'm nervous. Uh, but it was also such a huge benefit that I got to eat more. Yeah. 
I didn't have to go to class and be tired. I wasn't going to practice and feeling tired and exhausted to where I just wasn't getting enough nutrition. I now was getting that because my coach decided to to put that in place. Or and, enough... and and this is something you just found out recently. Yeah, I just found that over the summer. My my brother is a coach now. He he's an awesome coach in San Antonio. But my brother was at a coach's con- convention or conference and. This coach comes up to him and says, you're, you're Jonathan's brother. I had no idea that you were his brother. And they had already had a relationship for about three years at that time. And, but because my brother, we have different dads, so my brother has a different last name for me. Yeah. No, and, and he's not nearly as good looking as me. Or actually, no, he, my brother's an awesome looking guy. Uh, my mom used to tell me that he was a good looking one and I was a smart one. So <laughs> still a little bitter and a hater about it. But um, so my, he tells my brother when at the conference, he's like, hey, I had no idea. And my brother calls me and he's like, hey, he was like, crying and he said um like stories like what i got to do for your brother are the reason that i'm in this business the reason i coach the reason i'm a teacher is so i can impact people just like your brother he goes hearing your brother's story just makes me feel like my career was made yeah and and i remember crying because i didn't know that he was by himself trying to feed me every single day and and maybe it was only two bucks three bucks a day but that's still him doing that every single day for yeah. me. And I got tears listening to that story because I remember him. He was my coach. He was someone that I looked up to. He he taught me how to run faster. And I became this cultural player. And, and so I was already excited about having that relationship with him. But now knowing that, well, he's also the reason that I got to eat and not feel hungry all throughout class or through practice or in the evenings was because this coach did that for me. You know, what's interesting is... Um... So many times we, you know, we, we, we come across teachers who get caught up in the teaching part, like, like putting knowledge into the noggin of kids and what they, and sometimes they're, they're, they're led down the path of, of just that. And so they like it when that kid, when it's an easy, you know, it's a kid sits there and they're quitting, they have support and the kid is prepared every day and the parents are make sure the whole work's done. But really for me, it's those teachers that are seeking out the kids that don't have that. They don't have the support. They don't have the supplies. They don't have the food. They don't have the money because that is the kid that I want. That's what, that's where I want to make the impact, man. Yeah, and, and I had so many of those, so I, I get the benefit of, I can name you a bunch of them. I, I don't necessarily just say, oh, this one teacher. I, I had a lot of them that really did that for me. I can talk to you about different teachers that let me, they would stay late at school just so I could use their computer. So I didn't have a computer at home, so anytime I had to type up something, they would let me stay there, or the athletic trainer would let me come in at 6 in the morning, even though, yeah. and, and they'd drive to the school for me. They'd stay late. I had a counselor, the other one who just believed in me so much that when I didn't get accepted to Harvard, I was embarrassed to tell my counselor like oh i didn't get it i didn't get into harvard as if though that's really embarrassing <laughs> right i mean i'm lucky i got into any schools like harvard <laughs> and so this counselor made me believe so much in myself and and he would stay i remember he made our school a, an sat testing site and i was the only one to take the sat on a saturday i'm sure in other schools maybe they would have canceled it but i needed to take an sat too in order to get into an ivy league type school yeah and so he he stayed an extra day on a Saturday just for me so I can take the SAT2. Um, and and here's, here's the thing about the RGV, and this is what I think, I don't know if I talked about it there at all, but what I love about it is I have found so many world-class, just, I mean, just such inspiring people in the classrooms there because it's so hard that anybody else that would just might have tread water and just kind of, you know, dabble in this teaching thing 
it's too hard. They're gone. They've even they've either moved to an easier place to teach or they're out of the business. And what's left over in the RGV are just thousands upon thousands of educators that are in it for the right reason, and their 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 hearts in it, man. Yeah, and and one of the things I love about doing professional development work is they come in, the teachers come and tell me their stories. They're like, oh, I had little Johnny also. He was like this, like this, like this. And, oh, this time I helped Jennifer. This time I helped Jessica. Or I guess I'm in the Valley, so I'm be more like um, Javier. Or, I, mean, I don't want to say the Mexican joke like that. But um, all these teachers, they tell me about their things, and I get to go repeat those stories to other people. And, and yeah. now one little child being helped by this teacher can now be an inspiration to another teacher the next spot that I go and the next spot that I go yeah. and the next spot that I go. And so, you know, these stories, they, they start to add up so much and I get to just go and dump them all on the next school. Uh, and so to me, that's some of the most inspiring stuff is to know that it wasn't just my couple of teachers that did yep. it for me. They're everywhere, man. Everywhere. And, and, and what, what I love is that they have, and I've seen them share, they, they share with me as well um, because I, they, they know I get it and I'm one of them, but who they really, really love to share with are people like you because you were one of the kids. And it's for some reason it, um, it make it just, it's almost, it's almost as if their story in their career and their story, it's come full circle and they have some closure and it affirms what they're doing when they get to share what they've done for someone else, because that per someone else has done it for you. It's a powerful moment for a teacher. Yeah, and, and you'll see it down where I live in the Rio Grande Valley. I just told you that the Harvard admissions officer um, or, or someone that had worked there in the past told me, oh, I think you'll get into school, but I don't think you're going to make it because you're from down there. And so I now have seen – right now there's a student. I interviewed her for, for – I, I volunteer as a Georgetown interviewer. This little girl from Brownsville, Texas, the very bottom tip, where people would say, oh, that's where like the, the poorest poor, the most Mexican of the Mexican. That's Mexico City. What are you talking about? Yeah, it's the same place. <laughs> The highway literally goes right into Mexico, so uh -huh. the end of the interstate that goes down to South Texas ends by crossing into yeah, Mexico. This little girl from there, she's currently the vice president at Georgetown University. She's a sophomore, junior. Interviewed her a couple of years ago. I'm interviewing her and seeing, like, oh, this girl's going to change the world. And there she is now at the university. Um, in the past, I think Bill Clinton had run for office at Georgetown University. He didn't get it. Uh, so this little girl from Brownsville, Texas, from that South Texas area, yeah. went to public school. She wasn't at a private school. She wasn't at some fancy charter school. She was a product of the public school system with public school teachers. And she's now the vice president of the university where I'm sure there's current congressmen, current big-time business people. Their kids are at this school, yet that little girl is the current vice president of the university. Yeah. And you know, and you know, I'm what sorry, not is. vice president, vice president student body, not right? I get it. Of the universe. Yeah, the um, you know what I love is um, so many of those kids they have everything, like everything. You can check all the boxes. They have everything, all the qualifications, um, intellectually, emotionally, in terms of maturity. They have everything they need. But you know what? That one box they have unchecked sometimes is just someone to believe in them, and to say you can do it, and have you stand before him like, hey man, I went to that school. I'm from here, just like you. That alone just checks the box. Yeah, and and that that little part, the belief in them, is one of is one of the things that makes me tear up when when I hear stories of kids who are like, "Man, I wish my dad would tell me things like that. I wish my mom would tell me. I wish my teachers." Uh, that belief part. I remember where I told you that critical moment of seventh grade when I was starting to turn into becoming a really great student. I had this one teacher. She was my English teacher. 
I don't remember any of the, I'm terrible at writing still to this day, I'm terrible at English, people make fun of my text. Um, but I remember she told me at the end of the year when I, when I was searching for, I needed to get approval to then take more pre-AP classes in eighth grade. And I walked up to her and I said, ma'am, will, will you sign that next year I get to take pre-AP eighth grade English? And she said, yes, you should have been in pre-AP all this time, you're a brilliant kid. When I, when I heard you speak the other day, I thought, oh, I hadn't thought about, you know, she was like that first teacher that really told me she believed in me. Yeah. And I don't remember any other English, and I'm still terrible English to this day, but I remember she believed in me and how much more confident I went into that eighth grade year with an, a full pre-AP class schedule because she told me, oh, you should have been there all along. Like, you've been awesome. Like, you can do it. Yeah. You know, it really is believing in that kid enough for the both of you until that kid can believe in himself. And one of my favorite speeches, um, right when I started getting into the speaking world, uh, I started listening to, luckily YouTube is around, so I just started binging on great speeches. And one of my favorite talks uh, is from the coach of North Carolina State. Um, every year during the, like the certain time of year, ESPN just puts his speech out there over and over. Jimmy V? Jimmy V. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Coach Jimmy Valvano, he talks about how, at the end of his speech, he's talking to like this sales organization after they won the national championship. But he said, there's something that my father would do. My father always believed in me. And so he had, he talks he's like that. He closes his speech with how his father believed in him. And so now as a coach, he tries to give that gift to all his players to believe in them. But there's so many kids out there that they don't have the parents to believe in them. You know, maybe their parents didn't know that that's something that they need to do for their kids, whether they're both there or they're absent because of work or because of other extreme things that have happened in the family. But every student needs someone that believes in them, I believe. So that, that little belief can help a student just go, um, I hate hearing someone, oh, like they need to have realistic goals. Because part of my speech, I talk about having big dreams and big goals. And people are like, oh, I teach my kids they need to be realistic. And I was like, well, just because this kid's a C student this year doesn't mean they have to be a C student the rest of their lives. Right. They can make some small changes, and they're so young. I mean, you, when I walked in here, I think you were asking me how old I was and, and kind of made fun of me for being 32. But And I think that's old, but I can make shifts right now at 32 in my life yeah. that can completely alter the entire rest of my life. And for sure, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, 18-year-old can do shifts and change different things and then they can dream and accomplish certain dreams and goals yeah man that's nothing you know what i mean that age that's not even a kid that, that's that's not a fully developed brain at that point like that you know here's here's one of my pet peeves especially the especially at the elementary like i get what well, it's at all levels okay but i'll i'll be with uh maybe in a school and i'll be in the teacher workroom and he will hear something like um you know, oh my God, that kid is so lazy, and like right there, it just I, I can't even like I just my body tenses up, but my I, I cringe because that kid isn't anything. You know what he says? He's twelve. That's all he is is twelve. He's not lazy. That's my that might be the behavior he's part he's exhibiting in your class. Doesn't mean it's in every class, but that's not who he is. Like we're, he's in the incubator, man. Like it's our job to nurture this kid and help him discover who he wants to become and then help him get there. He's not, he is, oh my God, he is just not, he's not, he's nothing. He's 12. That's it. That thing, like, you know, labeling and, and cause I think we forget their children. 
Yeah, and and so you we sometimes we label them and you're like, oh, you're lazy, or you're a bad student, oh, you're, and and I've had different family members that tell me things about me as well, and so I remember being like, oh, like that's just I made a mistake. I'm not I'm not always a loser. I I just <laughs> I just I, I missed that basket today, right. or you know, and, and you see it all the time, where maybe a kid starts doing a little bit poorly, and then they label them that way. Um, so even when I was taking care of my siblings, I would tell my brothers like. Make sure you're really, really good that first six weeks or that first grade period because a lot of teachers, sometimes they, they kind of just associate you automatically and then you'll get the benefit of the doubt when you're not. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it also works the other way where sometimes we see someone and we see their mistakes right away and then we label them with that mistake instead of labeling. And so that first impression shouldn't be what we see in them it's just sometimes it happens to us. And so I try to remind teachers when I go speak at schools or I try to remind parents when I'm talking to parents, like your child's only 11 years old, 12 years old. So what their, their decision-making process right now is off of such short amount of information that they've learned Yeah. that they just need to learn a few, they need to be exposed to a few more things. And all of a sudden that could easily change. Uh, we just got to correct a few habits. It's just little correctable things. But if we label them, and say, oh, you are a loser. Right. Like, no, no, that was just a losing effort there. You can change that. Uh, so that's part of the, the thing that I liked where, where in your training where you were like, oh, you tell them, like, here, this is the expectation. We expect to have high, you know, whatever the goals are. You didn't meet it this time. Like, here's some corrections because we know this is the expectation. So I think we should have high expectations for our children and our, our family, our community, the kids, the schools. It's just that we help them to realize, like, this is the expectation. We just, you might have messed up right now. Yeah. Uh, I think there's the the famous, uh, the growth mindset lady, um, Carol Dweck. I think she kind of always likes to say yet at the end. She's like, oh, you're, you're just not there yet. Uh, so it helps them to realize, like, oh, I'm not labeled that. It's just here in this one, I didn't do good. Yeah. I'm not there yet. You know, the challenge is with, um, in the school business, we're providing kids um, with sometimes the evidence that supports this false narrative and this false belief and this false label. For example, you know, a kid doesn't feel like they're all that bright and then they get their work back and it says 42. Well, there's your evidence. And then the kid doesn't do well on the star test. So he has to go to tutoring on Saturdays. Well, there's more evidence. I'm not bright. And there's more of it. And, you know, because of the standardized, you know, stuff that we set up for these kids, you know, I saw it happen with, um, uh, one of the most uh, graphic examples was when my daughter was in school and I went and I was driving by the school, you know, just two blocks that way. And I saw, my kid and maybe 20 other kids out running around, you know, with a couple of teachers. I'm thinking, what is she doing? You know, it's not recess, it's not lunch. And, and there's like a slide, like a blow up thing they're jumping on. And, um, and I'm looking at the school in the window and all these other kids are gathered at the window and my daughter's running around I'm thinking. So I, that night I'm like, Hey, baby, what, what were you doing at school? I was driving by, you're on the jumpy thing. And she goes, Oh, it's me and all the kids that got whatever the perfect score was on the star test. And so there's the evidence of so all those kids. Well, so I, I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate, you know, great effort and work, but now we got a whole bunch of kids sitting in a room staring at the window. We're not one of them. Yeah. I mean, that's dangerous. Yeah, I can't even. So I, I got the benefit of I was, when I started doing really well in school, I got the evidence that the shifts were working. Yeah. And so all of a sudden I'm competing for the best grade, and, and I was one of the kids who got the perfect 
I was back then, so tax. Yeah. I got the perfect tax score. Attack the tax. I remember the shirts. <laughs> right. I, and I got the perfect score on the tax. And so I started to label myself, but as a winner. Um, and so for me, I remember even though that was in a school in Harlingen, and then I went to a school in Houston, and then I went to school in Rio Hondo, I started experiencing, oh, if I make positive changes, I'm getting more positive labeling. And I, I was aware that oh, when I'm in all the the top when I'm in the top ten percent, the counselors look at me a little bit differently. They they act a little bit differently, and so I started to associate a lot of winning qualities with myself. And and so it it worked for me in a way. But you're right; those other kids are are seeing. Well, I'm not. Yeah. Well, for you, you know, with with all those challenges you had, um, just family and parents and moving, and then also, you know, so your internal struggle because you're constantly thinking about this. Was that was there a specific moment where everything shifted for you and you thought, "All right, man, I'm, that is not the plan for me. I'm on this path right now." Or was it more of a gradual thing? Uh, I would say it was mostly a gradual thing. But one of the really big moments was um, I was listening to the speaker one day in Houston. And the speaker, um, it, it was a religious thing. It was, it was a faith of a Joel Olstein Church, Mega Church here at Houston. Mm-hmm. And he quoted a lot of scriptures where he said, "You're the head and not the tail. You're you're born to be a ch- or you're supposed to be a champion. God has a plan for your life." And I remember taking those in, and then when I would go to school, or even after my mom went to prison, I were thinking. There's got to be a purpose for this. I'm, if I'm designed to be a champion, and, and I, I got into reading, so I, I, I spoke to some librarians a while back, and I was like, I would read the books, and in every great hero story, they experience struggles in their youth. And so in a way, I was reading these books, and I kept, I, I put myself in the book. I'm not sure if that's how other people read. I put myself as a hero every time. Yeah, every time. And so I'm always reading a book and thinking, well, how does this apply to me? And I would see how the person would experience bad things, but it would always prove to be good later on in life. And so I kind of took a lot of what was going on in my life at that time and thought, okay, there's got to be for some reason that I'm being prepared for this. I didn't know that I was going to become, you know, the biggest just in size motivational speaker, but, but also just going out and speaking everywhere. But I didn't know that it was preparing me to be a leader in my family, a leader in my school, a leader in the community, now going and speaking and, and trying to be a big influence in the education world. I didn't know that it was preparing me, but at the time when I was young, I thought, okay, it's okay that this bad stuff is happening to me because it's going to help me in the long run. Yeah. As long as I continue to, to do the right things, it prepares me for that, that bigger moment where I get to help other people. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but um, on the Joe Rogan podcast, there's an excerpt floating around where he just kind of went into a rant and what it was talking about where, you know, growing up, we, we often, you know, especially guys, little boys do that where you're reading something or even to this day, you're watching a movie, you always put yourself in the role of the hero or the, where there's the comeback, you know, something like that. And he went on this rant about the concept of being the hero in the story of your own life, in the movie of your life. What in this moment right now, what would the hero do? And, you know, in, in the, it was kind of silly when I first heard it, but then once I heard the clip of it again and somebody put the thing to music and images, I was like, man, that is so true. Like if, if, if your life was a movie right now, 
what would the hero do? What would be the one move right now where everybody go, oh my gosh, I wish I could get myself to do that. And when you think about it like that, especially when in the life of a kid, it changes everything. Yeah, and actually, so I, I even had this, um, so I went to Tony Robbins thing a couple of years ago, and he's like, you have to create an alter ego name and, yeah. and pump yourself up and, and have the, the stance of the, that alter ego name. I actually did that for myself when I was in high school. So I, the more that I read all of these high-performance books and leadership, everything, the more I see little things that I was doing in my life as a kid that I had no idea that I was doing. Maybe You're doing my, maybe just my, to survive. Maybe my coach made me yeah. do it because you know, my coach knew this thing, but he wasn't – he didn't tell me that, oh, if you do this, it's going to be, you know, from chapter four of Tony Robbins' book. Yeah. Um, and, but I did that. So um, growing up, when I experienced moving to that school, everyone called me Big John. And I was the leader. I was the captain of the team. And so the coach would always be like, oh, what does the captain do? You're the captain of the team. You're, you're going to sacrifice more. You're going to do this more. Oh, you're, you're in the top 10%. You're the president of the class. you got to represent for everyone. Um, you're a person of faith. So you, there's people that are watching you. They're going to... And so I always took this pressure of, okay, I'm the hero. I'm even thinking of writing a book about the hero dilemma um, growing up because I felt this pressure that I always have to perform. I have to be good for all the people. And I would read the comic books and it's like, oh, Spider-Man wants to be a regular kid, but he also knows that he's Spider-Man, so he has to make this decision. Right. Um, I would watch this show called Smallville back when I was young, and it's like, oh, Superman, he wants the girl, but he also knows that this is the right thing to do for the people right now. And so I would watch all these comic book movies or, or read these books and say, okay, the hero does this. This is the better choice for the community. The hero is willing to sacrifice now in order to get the reward later. And so I did all of those things. And so I'm super grateful for uh, the schools giving me certain, like the books that I read and, and making us read The Odyssey and, and all of those great hero stories because I took them in myself and would try to emulate those characteristics. Um, and I created this who Big John was, and whenever I had to, when the lights were on, I had to always be Big John. When there was a big decision in my life, I had to be Big John. Um, and so it's it's such a weird thing that later on, you know, three years ago after I've gone to college and gone to the prestigious school and I started a business, and that's scary at the time. I just started. And so I'm like, okay. And I'm going to this Tony Robbins thing, and he's like, oh, you got to do this. And I'm like, oh, I've been doing that since I was in high school. Check. No wonder <laughs> I was good at stuff. Yeah, yeah. What do you want Not some of your, your overall feelings of the uh, Tony Robbins event was. Oh, uh, I mean, his event's like the coolest thing. It's like, a, yeah. it's super, you're, you're at a rock star event. Yeah. Um, I think Pitbull performed for us, and right. he's making you jump around. His event, I think, is cooler than anyone else's event that I've ever gone to. Yeah, me too. And so what I always tell people when they start making fun of that guy, because a lot of people make fun of him. Oh, yeah. And um, I say, well, me, I say, well, you, you've never been, have you? And they go, no. I go, well, clearly, that's why you make fun. Because <laughs> if, you, if you'd been, if you went, and you really dug in to see what a great communicator and what a great teacher that he is. I mean, I know because of the um, his previous life and late night infomercials and that whole thing. Like, I get it. But when it comes down to it, at the event, you think, man, this guy is a masterful educator. Oh, yeah. And, and you can see all the people that have been life changed, had their lives changed by him um, and so or by his messaging and, and the way. But if he hadn't communicated as well as he has, if he hadn't gotten people, if he was not good at those late night infomercials, I wish I could find one right now. And I would see, I, I would like to study like, well, what was he doing yeah. late night that got people to buy his DVD and make a decision? You know what? I can change my life. Because I've listened to so many people like, oh, I was at a hotel room. I was feeling bad about myself and I want to quit my business or I want to commit suicide. I wanted to divorce my wife for something that was dumb and and. 
like, but then I watched this infomercial and I bought the DVDs and yeah. it came in two weeks later and all of a sudden my life changed. And I was like, oh, like even getting someone to commit to making that change is such a hard thing. That's why I understand for these teachers why it's so hard for them sometimes. They're like, I've tried so hard on this kid. And it's like, well, try this other thing, try this other thing, try tweak a little bit. And because um, I've been at a school before where they hired me to come and speak to the school and and I could, and I've seen this one principal because I follow her on Instagram. How she's been slowly changing the culture of the school, and it's so cool. But I remember when I went to go speak, they had had. I, I was I was there to talk to the students, so I didn't talk to the teachers. And but I'm there early because I'm nervous. It's Los Angeles. I have no idea what traffic's going to be like, so I'm like ridiculously early. They just put me in like a waiting room where they have staff meetings sometimes. And I look on the board, and I see they have it broken up in a quadrant. And there's a spot where. It's like shade this quadrant if you believe you know the content. You're, you know that you could be a good teacher. You know how to connect with students. You know all this thing. And then if you and tap over here, if you really do it. Yeah. And then, and then on the bottom half, to do this, if you really care about the students or if you just come to work. And the empty part was, it was like all these teachers, they, they are self-identified. They put the dots themselves because the principal explained to me later. Say, Oh, my, my teachers, they self-identified. They said they are good teachers. They know what to do. They just don't care anymore. Yeah. They're, they're not motivated to help these kids anymore. And I thought, oh, you have such an important job. What would my life have been like if my teachers didn't care, if my coach didn't care? I would have been that statistic that I was so afraid of becoming. Yeah. Except that my teachers helped me. And I, I got, I'm, I'm, you're hiring me to come speak to the school, but... It starts with leadership, so you need the teachers to 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 be there every single day. I'm only here for a day. Your teachers are here every day. If they don't believe in these kids, you know, that my my one motivational speech isn't going to be nope. worth anything. Yeah, it's going to feel good in the moment, but really, what makes it last is all the follow up that happens with each and every adult on that campus. You know, um, choosing to serve as the most influential person in the lives of their kids. Yeah, I mean, I, I can remember at the time when I was a little kid, because of my mom's issues, or, or it might just be even when she was being a good mom, she was at work. She worked night shifts at the at the hospitals. So I'd come home, she, she'd she greet us, and she was off to work, and I was the old, so I'd take care of my siblings. But So my mom would only see me for an hour max versus my teachers had me in their classrooms all day, every single day. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing life, brother. You know, here's what I love. I love the fact that you are um, out there on the road across the nation and, and standing before, you know, accepting the honor and privilege of standing before hundreds of thousands of kids and their teachers uh, sharing this story because it's so, there's so much um, there's so much education and so many lessons and just pure evidence that it's possible. And I know they need to see it. Yeah, and, and it's it's worked along. My brother right behind me, he can name teachers and coaches that really changed his life. Yeah. And because I, I share so much of the education stuff, I get so many messages from students all across the country. And they're like, oh, i got to tell you about Mr. J, Mr. T, Mrs. S. Yeah. And they just tell me amazing stories. And they're like, oh, before I started middle school, I was like this. And then because this teacher, I ended up like this. Yeah. Uh, so it's just so amazing to see. Uh, thank you to all the teachers out there that are doing the good work. Um, and and thank you for being there to impact those students, loving those students. Because for some of those, for many, many of those students, you're the person that is their champion that's going to help them become the champion and the hero of their story. Yeah.
Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. Yes, sir. Thank you. You're awesome.